0: From Western Sound and ACAST Studios, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 5, The Wolf and the Sheep, Part 2.
1: So, this bank, Bank of America, (laughs) continuing on my commitment to give Bank of America the blues. I walked into the front of this bank, it was December, it was around Christmas time, And I wanted to make a chunk of change because it was Christmas time. And I wanted to enjoy the holidays. And when I walked in, I walked all the way to the back of the bank here because that's where the manager was. And I walked straight up to the guy and I say, we have a bomb, I have a gun, take me to the vault. And for some reason, I knew I wanted to rob the vault. I don't recall right now why, but I just was ready. And the way I walked up to him and with the ferocity, I persuaded him to walk me to the back When he walked me into the vault, to the left was like a little corridor. It was the vault, and on the right-hand side of it were two women on their knees putting bricks of money into a vault on the floor or ground, you know, or put into the wall. There was a vault in the vault. Yeah, there's like a vault in the vault. I look at them and say, get up against the wall. And I put them on their knees. Now they're facing the wall. And I'm standing in front of this open vault. And, and I'm patting, like this is the first time I've been in a vault. I'm, I'm like, "Whoa, I bit off more than I could chew cuz now I'm scared to death someone's going to come and they're just going to close a vault on me." So I don't know what I'm, I don't know whether to worry about this or not. And now here's the thing about the money. They're bricks of money. They're the size of a 1000 bills pressed together. But they're, they're they have cardboard over them. And I can't decipher w- what bills they are. Not at all. No idea. And then I, I go back to the, the I'm doing this dance. It's goofy. I feel like Benny Hill. Like, I'm just really silly shit. But I go back to the thing, and I finally, like, I just got to get out of here. And I have, what, a uh, um, uh, pillowcase on me. I throw the money in the pillowcase, and I have this bulky bag of six bricks of money. I put it under my trench coat because I have a trench coat at the time. And I walk out of the bank. And the iconic photo of me walking out of the bank with a, a tie on, a suit, a trench coat, looking down, purposeful of sunglasses, coal hand loafers with tassels, that's that shot. Underneath that trench coat, I have six bricks of money in a, in a pillowcase. I get to my car, take off. I'm so excited that I got these bricks of money from a vault I'm gonna be super rich. Imagine they could be the ones, five, but they could be tens and twenties and hundreds, a thousand, hundreds. <laughs> so I'm like, woohoo, I fucking scored. And that was quick. I went in there and went straight up to the guy, take me to a vault. That's what we're gonna do now. I'm a vault bank robber now. I get to my car and I'm driving and I rip open the first one and I can't wait. I'm so excited. And it's $5 bills. And I'm like, ah. Oh. That's $5,000. Okay, whatever. That's $5,000, that's just one. Let me see what I got. The next five were $1. (laughs) Just ones, (laughs) just just one. If one of them had been fives, it would have been 15,000. But no, I had to pick five ones. Why couldn't it have been five fives? It was, it was, man, it was bizarre. Like the luck I had to get five of the probably the only five ones they had, I picked them. The sheer bad luck of it, you know.
0: Part One Troublemaker. Joe, we've been hearing a lot about your family in these last few episodes, how hard it was. But I want to get a sense from you of how you were evolving, like, as a criminal. Like, you mentioned a few times that you had this kind of double identity at school, honor roll, also acting out. Like, what
1: was going on with you With
0: you and your psychology?
1: Yeah, the thing is, like, I don't think I saw, oh, I want to Track to be a criminal. This is how you behave as a criminal. In fact... When I looked around and I saw guys that were these young little cholos, I was like, those guys are on track to go to prison. (laughs) Those guys are already, like, using drugs and, you know, carrying weapons. What I was doing was just stupid, sloppy suffering. Like, I was just messing up. But there are things that did happen that reveal that I was, uh, my morality was in flux. I felt this strong sense of entitlement, and I wanted to take shit, right? So, um, for example, I had a friend named Mike Hart, and we loved this guy, you know, he was poor like us, Catholic, mom was single mother, Mike Hart's a great guy. Mike had saved a lot of money, he was super disciplined, he was the kind of guy, you know, mowed lawns, did, you know, that kind of thing. I heard, or he showed us this big, big, jar of change that he had in his house and i remember once we were playing and i went inside my house i said i gotta go do something i went inside the back of our apartment and uh immediately go out the front door run around the front of our apartments and go into his apartment building and sneak in through the window of his apartment into his bedroom and go into the closet where he had the money hidden and I start to pilfer change. And as I'm pilfering change out of there, he comes in the house. <laughs> I'm stuck in the closet. And I'm like, oh shit. And he's like, is somebody back there? Hello? Is anybody here? He was scared to death. And I was scared to death. I was like, man, I'm gonna be caught stealing from my friend. Like, he doesn't get any worse. This is terrible. And uh, eventually, you know, is anyone there? Hello, is anyone there? He just finally walked out, and I go running out the window, and I come out of, the, you know, my apartment. Hey, everybody, sorry, it took me a while. Where were you? We went in the house, we couldn't find you. Like, it was kind of obvious I was, I was like, being a rascal or whatever. But w- what's important and instructive in this is I saw something, I wanted it, it belonged to somebody I cared about, and I didn't give a fuck, I had to go get it. Like, that is already showing you, I was going to be a guy who's get out of my way. If I want something, I'm going to go get it. If there's somebody who loves me, cares for me, whatever, whatever, man, I don't give a fuck. I need to go get it. And you're incidental in my life. Why were you trying to steal from
0: someone that you knew? Like, he was one of your good friends. Why would you target a friend? That's
1: just it, right? You're looking at it from your side. You're looking at it like, why would you target your friend? And I'm like, what are you talking about? It didn't have anything to do with Mike. In that moment, he had what I wanted. I did not have it. I wanted to go take it. He becomes incidental in that moment. In my imagination, just people were objects. He was now just in the way of me getting what I needed. This is important when I would later become a bank robber and I would walk in to these tellers. I didn't see them as human beings. I've said it before. When I walked in there with the rage that I had, They were chess pieces on a board. They just needed to move. I didn't care anything about their family, their futures, their goals, their aspirations, their dreams, their resentments. I didn't care anything that made them human. That's what I'm talking about. Early on, I was able to kind of just, for whatever reasons, not look at him as Mike Hart. If I had looked at him as Mike Hart, I would not have... Um I would not I don't think I could have done it. I had to just be like I got to get it. It's mine. Compulsion. Got to take it. Hmm. Get out of the way. How can I be deceptive and get it? And so what we're talking about here is we're talking about obviously a bunch of psychology shit.
0: Well yeah, I was going to say the pop psychologist to me is like, "Oh, well your mom had died. You know, your dad was not showing you love." both sometimes was but sometimes wasn't in really dramatic ways so like
1: maybe you're not able to have those kinds of emotional attachments with people is that i'm I'm sure that's part of there's a lot of it there too because remember i also was looking at this time like oh there's all this morality they're teaching me it's a bunch of bunk my dad's beating me he has a pastor of a church nobody recognizes it this whole morality thing's a sham i mean i'm being raised by a hypocrite of the first rank i don't i like what what is this why do do you want me to buy into that stuff i already told you i think there's a story i mentioned where my grandmother was lying to me you know (laughs) my my grandmother's oh look at all those letters we had this magnet we showed up to her her house with my brother and i We had a magnet board that had all these letter magnets on it. We'd gotten for Christmas. We were excited. You could, like, spell all sorts of things on them. Um, And my grandmother came out on the porch, my mother's mother, and she was like, oh, look at all those beautiful letters. Oh, there's the K and the J. And I looked at it, and I was like, man, we lost our K and the J. There's no K and J here. And I realized, oh, she's illiterate. Oh, she's lying to us like we're a bunch of lames. Hmm. (laughs) It's like, this adult is just out of vanity She's just gonna like sit here and lie to us like we're a bunch of idiots. Oh, this is what the world's made out of. It's just a bunch of adults. I don't give a shit. They tell us we need to like tell the truth and we need to be all. You know, I was I was sick of already that that thing that I saw was 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 ridiculous. I was seeing you know these timid moralities all around me. I was like, yeah, that that's not gonna work on me. I needed something more and it was not there. I was fearing God less and less. Um, and, um, pushing the boundaries of just, of, of course, pop psychologists, oh, look at your acting out. I was acting out. I was, there was nobody there to help me figure out how to navigate this incredibly turgid world, uh, emotional world that was going it through. It wasn't acting out. You were... Kind of in
0: like a more morality free fall almost. Yeah, that's
1: good. It was, but it was also there's yeah. I was exactly. It was much deeper than acting. But out. It, it, the 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 I was in moral free fall, and the way it demonstrated itself was in these acts of of, of breaking rule breaking. That's what I want right. to say. I'll give you a perfect example. So I'm in eighth grade. I'm popular kid. You know, I'm gonna I'm I'm up for the American Legion award, and one day. Um, I want to get out of a test or something I hadn't studied for, so I um, pull a fire alarm.
0: You, talk, you you mentioned this story a couple episodes ago, right? This is when you pull the fire alarms,
1: you get suspended. And I then... pull the fire alarm, I tell a couple friends, and, yeah. and my friend, oh, you're so crazy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm crazy, look at this, I'm going to pull another one. And I pull another one the next day, and like for a week, I'm pulling fire alarms, right? And I get caught because I pull a fire alarm in my class because this very attractive. Eighth grade girl says, you know, hey, I have a test today, can you pull a fire alarm? Like everyone knew I was pulling fire alarms. I'm like, yeah, watch me. But I can't get out of class at that time. So I have to do it in class, in my homeroom. And I do it, we all have it, it works out great. Except when we come back in, the vice principal comes in the room and says, it happened in here. One of your students did it, tells the homeroom teacher. He says, "Where was everyone standing?" And everyone's, "I was standing right there next to Jimmy. I was seated right here next, talking to Nancy." And I'm like, "Oh, I was standing over there by Georgia. And Georgia's like, "No, you weren't." <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, I was. I was right behind you. You know, I, I heard you were talking to so and so." She goes, "No, you weren't." And so I was, I was busted. And yeah, I get actually, I get spanked with a paddle, thick paddle with holes in it. They bend me over the, the 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 principal's desk and whack me two or three times. Hmm. That shit hurt too. But my but point I'm making is like that right there. You know, as far as all these guys I did time with who got kicked out of school, they laughed at me when I told them that. Story. They're like, "You got kicked out for that? Like they kick <laughs> people out for that stuff?" Because <laughs> like, all the guys I was in prison with, like, "Oh, we were got. I got kicked out because you know I stabbed somebody. Oh, I got kicked out because I." You know, he hit my teacher with a bat. Oh, I, because I lit the room on fire. I, so I was like, as far as crime, that's why when we talk about, I don't like the idea of trying to butch up the early years of like, look at the crimes he was, I just, that was just acting, you know, it was just like, that's why I say acting out. Like to me, it's just, I'm just doing a bunch of stupid stuff, more stupid, in fact, than my friends who are also a bunch of stupid, you know, boys. But I was the one who was like leading it all and kind of, you know, they would dare me to do things and I would do them and stealing skateboards from thrifties, pulling fire alarms, stealing money from my friend, you know, that kind of stuff, stealing money from the offering. Right. That's what I was doing because it was a confusing, desperate, um, fearful time for me. And this is actually, all of this is the stew that's turning into rage. I'm like just, I have all these key ingredients and, um, and, uh, you know, coupled with the violence in the home and, and Brenda and my dad are not getting along. They're getting ready to be divorced. Um, and my dad has a, you know, ministry and I'm getting beat in the week. But then on Sunday, you know, all these Christians are like, oh, this man's the greatest guy on earth. It's like, you know, this, all this is just, I'm in a quandary I'm a moral free fall is a good word. You know, I was collapsing in on myself like a bad flan. <laughs> That's a terrible metaphor, but you get my point. I'm just not not holding up. The center will not right. hold. That's a better one, because at least it's very poetic.
0: You know, when we talked to Danny Shaw back in episode two, he said he didn't have any idea about what was actually happening in your home life, even though he was your best friend. How were you able to, to hide that? I mean, like, what was your everyday
1: sort of demeanor like? So... <laughs> I don't think I hit it. I don't think people were able to process. It. Mm. I've seen this a couple times when I got out of prison as an adult, and sometimes I want to share with people just how tough it had been for me. And I swear to God, you know, as God bless them, people want to know, they want to support, they want to. They have no context to understand some of this stuff, and they just look at me with these like deer in a like thing. And never bring it up again. <laughs> like they don't know how to process it. And, and what I realize is, it's it's heavy, heavy stuff that I have a hard time holding on to. And it happened to me, and I understand the context of all of it. So when you try to have other people who don't know anything about that hold that, they don't. What the? They don't. This just does not know. Does not compute. And then we're talking about 12, 13, my friends who were 12, 13, 14 years old, they didn't know what to do. If I'm conflicted, imagine how conflicted they are. Danny loved my dad. My dad was great to Danny every time he saw him um, and and, um, impacted Danny's life in hugely powerful ways. To this day, Danny cries when he talks to my dad about certain things. So when he's hearing my story and then he's hearing and he's knowing what he knows in his body, because of, of my dad There's no way that guy can process that stuff So I don't begrudge anybody who says I didn't know I'm like yeah you, I told you mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I let you know In the moment you knew But yeah they cannot be held to account For for not holding on to that Or not knowing what to do with that uh, You know what I mean So you know they cannot Like I said earlier My friends did not know And could not know It was going to get to the level uh, the extreme level of violence in her home that it eventually did. We'll be right back.
0: Part two, call for help.
2: Before we move to Burbank, one uh, of Joe's sister's found out about the abuse.
0: This is Brenda again, Joe and Paul's stepmom.
2: They knew their brother but they didn't know this. And she was appalled. Um she put me in touch with a man. Actually he was the minister of her church. She said, you know, he's he's good at this sort of thing. He knows our family and she took me to him and I did. I just told him everything. To my great encouragement, he believed me. He said, I know this family. I know this culture. And everything you say rings true. Don't worry. We'll deal with this. And I was so relieved. So relieved. But what he meant by we'll deal with this meant that he promptly called my husband. He said, I know what you're doing. I want you in here right now. How could you? I'm ashamed, you know. And he came. And the next time I came for an appointment, my husband was sitting there and I didn't expect it. No one had told me. And he repented and sackcloth and ashes. Oh, I'm so relieved that it's out in the open. I'm so glad. i you know, yes, now we can, you know, clean slate and all of that. And this counselor was, I think, kind of proud of himself. I mean, like, handle, handle that. Boy, yeah, I, I called that one. <laughs> <laughs> <woo>. I'm good. <laughs> I am good. Uh. Um, when we got home, I, t- I took probably the worst beating I took during my marriage. And it was right after that we moved to Burbank. Uh, I lost a baby to that beating. Um, Joe didn't know I was pregnant. I, I didn't want him to know. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and, um, you know, that is why we moved in a very big hurry. Too many people were finding out. We had to go someplace where he was safe, his reputation was safe.
0: How did, you, um, how did you decide to leave?
2: Um, we were on our way home from work one day. Uh, my husband picked me up. We carpooled together. And I'd gotten a call from Paul's teacher that he had failed a spelling test. and I told his father on the way home and he got explosively angry over a spelling test he pulled the car over turned sideways in his seat and started kicking me I opened the door of the car and got out which he was kicking me out of the car he wanted me out of the car And then he drove off. And I was in an industrial area, bad part of town, and it was getting dark. And there I was. Um, I found a phone booth. And I called a cab, and I got home. And when I got home, I knocked on the door. No one came to the door. I, I had to knock a lot. Finally, my husband opened the door with one hand. He was sweating. He was disheveled. And his other hand was around Paul's throat. And Paul was bleeding from the nose and from the mouth. And I think that was the first time I ever got physical with my husband. It was just a shocking thing. And I just jumped in the middle and started flailing. And I think it scared him. It certainly surprised him. And he, he left the apartment, and I tended to Paul. Paul said, Bryn, please, you've got to help us. You've got to help us. And uh, he had never put it to me quite like that. And I said, I will. I said, I will. And I made an appointment this morning church had um, a counseling staff, a very good one actually, and under the guise of taking Paul, I made an appointment to get in because my husband had a stellar reputation at this church. It was very important to him to have their good opinion, and so Paul volunteered to come with me. He said, they're not going to believe you. I'll come too. They'll listen to two of us. Now Paul was about 14, 13 or 14. So we went, and I did not, quite honestly, blurt it all out at once. I was kind of feeling my way along, making sure we were safe here, telling a little bit of the story and then a little bit more of the story. Um, There was no easy way to do it. There was no safe way to do it. That was the beginning. Eventually, my husband had to be told that I was in counseling. And so they did. They called him in. And he was very cooperative and amenable in the setting. And he would, we would get home, and he would be violent. It scared me how he could go from being one person to being another person in front of people whose good opinion he wanted, he could be so charming. He, he had courtly manners and was very articulate. I know people didn't believe me, I understand that. I wouldn't have believed me. Um, and then he would get home and he'd be an entirely different person. And the violence became unreasonable. It became pretty bad. I think I kind of lost it, to tell you the truth. Uh, I'd been at this now almost five years, four and a half years. And I I was losing my ability to handle the situation, certainly, but also personally. I had taken this huge step, gone to people, and it wasn't working. They were saying, really? You know, I've known Joe Loya for 10 years, 12 years, and I've never seen this. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, I don't know anyone except through him. I I have nobody who's willing to consider my story. They think they know. And that scared me. And what also scared me was now my husband knew, that some other people knew, And instead of saying, well, you know, the gig's up. I guess I might as well come clean and let's get down to business and fix this. He decided to lie about it. Now I was really scared. I didn't know what else to do. I would tried not telling, trying to handle it myself. Now I was telling and asking for help, and it was just making things worse. Joe was getting more and more desperate to keep us under control. Um, I also had met a woman who, again, knew about the abuse and offered me a place to come. Until then, I didn't know where I would go. Um, I was not working at that point. and, And I had no money of my own. He controlled that. Where do you go? So until this woman offered me her home, I didn't really know where I would go. She gave me a place to be, and I started trying to enact my plan. Um, I just hit a wall, and I was very calm. Um, I decided one day. I remember I made dinner for for the children. I put something in my slow cooker and I wrote them a note. And I left. It was pretty naive, but I thought I could do it. And that was I would get someplace where I was safe. I would get the children. I would find a place I could live. I'd bring the boys to live with me. I would get us all. I'll save you, you know. And that was very naive and very much not the case. And um, it was only afterwards I went to see an attorney, and I found out, no, you're not even their legal guardian. That was awful. That I had not expected. I had no more right to see the boys than a stranger on the street. I had no legal standing. If their father didn't want me to see them, I couldn't see them. I did not see that coming. I really thought with, there were people who knew. There were people who stepped up and verified my story. I thought, I can, I can make my case. I can get the children where they're safe. And now I knew I couldn't. That was awful. That was bad. Now what had I done? I knew what was going on in that home, and no one believed me. And now I wasn't there. I had made things much, much worse.
0: We'll be right back. Part three, The Center Cannot Hold. So it's less than a year after Brenda leaves. And she's right, things go from bad, to worse, to even worse. But remember back in episode two, when Joe talked about the energy, that power in the shadows? By now, these shadows
1: are so dark they're crackling. Brenda divorces my dad after four and a half years. She can't handle it. She she, she leaves. So at 16, we've moved back to Alhambra from Burbank. And um, that Burbank had been our move up the ladder. My dad was working for New York Life Insurance Company. He'd given up the ministry. He was making some ducats. We were now like I was going to a nice white school, <laughs> like yeah, like we were on the move. She leaves him, and he just spins out. Here's Joe's brother, Paul. Again,
3: it was a, it was, it was a weird time, you know. It was a really weird time that those years, you know. Yeah.
0: So it talks about um,
3: one time you're in the kitchen cleaning up. It's a difficult story to, um, (laughs) I'm going to weather this one. I'm going to weather this one, but this is a difficult story for me. It's one of the things that, um, is a really, um, defining moment in my life. I'm going to weather this one because, uh, because I'm a survivor of abuse. Um, Again, I don't know what day of the week or anything like that, but I know that I was washing dishes, and I and I know that I rarely wash dishes at the time. Like I was, like we you know you have certain roles when you're a little kids, and you know I was always the dryer. I was never the washer. I was always the dryer. Joe was always the washer. I was always the dryer. But this particular time, you know, my dad yelled at us, and, and you know, we. I was again. I was always. Um, I was always moved by fear so I, I automatically went to the washer and I started washing dishes and I was nervous and I was just like this this bag of nerves and, and so I missed and I was not a very good washer but you know again I'm 14 years old 13 and a half probably at the time and um my dad ended up going to the to the, to the dishes that I had washed and he picked up a few and you know obviously I was deficient in my washing capabilities and he got upset and he started yelling at me
1: he punched my brother in the rib, the back of the ribs, grabs my brother by pounces on him, grabs him by the back of the hair, and starts dunking his head in the soapy dish water.
3: He stuck my head under the hot water, the scalding water, and Joe was sitting there rinsing the dishes and he was just appalled at, at what it was occurring.
1: I'm paralyzed with fear, holding the plate, looking at him. Scared
3: to death, right? Because my dad started putting my face into the water, and what I did was just automatically turn my head. And when I turned my head, I think I turned my head to Joe, so our eyes met. And for a split second there, Joe could see the fear. And it was one of those, just one of those really, um, poignant times in my life where I just had eye contact with Joe and Joe knew that I was afraid. And Joe couldn't protect me. Joe wanted to protect me, but he couldn't. And, um... My dad is holding my head underwater. He lifts my face back up after a few seconds and he just gets right up to my face, man. Right up to my face. And he says, you know... (laughs) He says, you know, you should have died instead of your mother.
1: he lifts Paul's head out, and he says the words are just, just, oh, but mean. You should have died instead of your mother. I'm
3: 13 and a half, maybe 14, you know. It's one of those defining moments in my life that, that it's just really, really, um, It's just really, really sad to remember it. It's really uh, sad to discuss it, but I know that um, it's not who I am. I know it's not true. I know that um, I've resolved and reconciled it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a good person. I, I try to do, you know I mean? Like that's, I'm a survivor of abuse. And uh, I can't believe that that happened to me, but it did and um it's it's still it still hurts you know' it's, it still hurts it's something that will always hurt. It's something that's really uh difficult for me to reconcile, but you know I'm not that little boy anymore, and I'm a lot stronger I'm a lot stronger
1: it is. The worst memory of my life, and I remember that night thinking, I, sh- I want to die, I just want to die. One, because I had always been this brave kid who protected my brother, and that day I could not do it. I was haunted by my brother's face of water coming out of his nose and his eyes, a supplication looking at me like just terrified. Mm. And I wanted to die, I want it was seriously like suicide, just take me, Jesus Christ, man. I don't want to even be here. I cannot live with my cowardice. I confronted cowardice that day. And um, here's the thing. I was smart. I was intense. I had this uh, aggression, and I felt my heart was big and and muscular. And even though I was getting beat down, I felt like I was made to be bigger than this. Right? This is what's happening to me now, but one day I'm going to be... And that's why this was so crushing to me because I'm sitting there and I feel pathetic. I feel terrible and I don't know what to do with this thing. And the other thing too is I was afraid because I knew the death of my mother and I knew vicious beatings. That day they merged because my dad said you should have died instead of your mother. And now the, uh, a weird morbidity crept in. He married two of my major griefs. The being abused, the death of my mother, and they became one in that statement. And I started thinking, oh shit, that dude wants to kill us. He wants one of He has, certainly wishes my brother hadn't lived. He wants my brother dead. What about me? My mind is now thinking in terms of a life and death struggle that had never existed before. I was just a boy getting beat down because that's what happens in 1973. Boys get beat down by their dads all the time, you know? But now it's different and leveled up. Now it's a whole different level. And this is important because the reason I want to die is because I recognize it's an extinction issue. And I feel like the only power I have right now is to make myself extinct rather than my dad make me extinct. That's the only option I have because then I have some control over that. Right. It makes sense. You see it in the you see it in the the ancients understood this. Ovid, when he talks in his poetry about um, a, a plague coming. People would wait for, be waiting for the plague. They knew it was three villages away, two villages away. People would come and say, the plague's fucking ravaging the country. And some people could not wait for the plague to come. So they're like, fuck it, I'm leaving my family. All of you are a bunch of losers, fuck you. And they'd walk in the direction of the plague. And they were just like, cause they are like, I'm gonna die on my own terms. I'm not gonna wait here. And they would just abandon their families and walk towards the plague. That, there is a way in which some people have to have control even of their own demise. And in this moment, I'm like, fuck it, man. I'm going to die because this dude wants us dead anyway. And for six months, I hold on to that. Like, I'm miserable. It's my first thought of suicide that I can that I remember.
0: So the months go on. What happens over the next few months?
1: We're in Alhambra. I graduated from Alhambra High School, actually. But we're in Alhambra. 11th grade, February. February is the worst life of my day or month of my life. Every bad shit that ever happened, my mother's death, this event. I got arrested twice in February. Um, February sucks for me. It was February, and um, my dad has a girlfriend who I like. And I, one day she takes us to Sizzler. That's what I mean, she was cool. She took us to Sizzler. And in those days, Sizzler was a bomb, man. <laughs> like, you know, steakhouse and everything. And Sizzler, one thing, I've become a connoisseur of knives. I like knives. Sister has great knives. I remember whole, we were talking to her, and I tell her that my she needs to be my dad. My dad's brutal, baits us. He's a fraud. And I tell her these stories of abuse because I want her to know that super dramatic, the terrible things he does to us. But in telling those stories, I realized I really made myself look soft-ass, weak, mm. and pathetic. And in a, in a moment of peak and, you know, kind of like quiet humiliation, I just pick up the steak knife and I'm, in fact, you know, so saddened by how pathetic I made myself sound. I pick up the knife. I claim the knife. I I, I, I speak what I'm going to do. Next time he says I'm going to stab him in the neck next time he hits it, I'm just gonna stab him in the neck did you say that or do you I said that you said that and me? I hold up the knife and it's like being a novelist like if you show the gun in the first act it has to go off
0: This is episode five of The Bank Robber Diaries, The Wolf and the Sheep, part two. It's season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design by Dan Leone. Production assistants: from At Run Hell. Mixing by Johnny Vince Evans. If you want to see pictures of Joe... Joe's young family uh, a lot of what we've been talking about is all online at our website thescorepodcast.co and then Joe has a website too which is joeloya.ltd that's J-O-E L-O-Y-A dot L-T-D he's posted a lot of videos from his various media appearances over the years and there's also his book is there The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell it's a very gripping read and it, it's a lot about what we're talking about here on the show too Uh, And while you're clicking around, why not click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review? Five stars are really appreciated, but your words about the show really mean so much. Uh, Apple Podcasts, a great app to listen to your podcasts on. But of course, we're available anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Next up is episode six, The Hunter. Stay tuned.